My name is Andy Cahill. I'm a transformational coach, and I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an incredible array of practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with your friends and colleagues, subscribing on Apple Podcasts, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Francis Breyers, and fair warning for those who are about to listen, we have a serious nerd bro down, particularly in the last 20 minutes or so of the conversation. So if you are at all interested in themes of mortality, creativity, spirituality, possible futures, science fiction, poetry, oh boy, you name it, Francis and I have a lot of fun on this one. But the thing I want you to know about Francis is that he is someone deeply committed to understanding what it means to be a wise human being. What is wisdom? And he's been in the process over the past decade of really clarifying and articulating what we might call a formula for wisdom, which we get into the first half, at least, in this conversation. So we follow a lot of threads, but that's the central theme. What is it to be a wise being in the world? Francis has over 15 years experience facilitating individuals and groups. He trained at one of the UK's top drama schools. He's an executive coach, a spiritual counselor, and a poet, a damn good poet. Make sure you stick around to the very end to hear him read one of his latest poems written in the time of this pandemic in full. It is an incredible, incredible gift. So let's take a moment to get centered. Big, deep breath. And without further ado, Francis Breyers. Francis Breyers, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you. It's so cool it's great to, to be here. Yeah. 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 Nice. So, Francis, I have had the good fortune, thanks to my colleague and one of your readers, Michael Newland, turned me on to your work. And I encounter you as one of these people who walks beautifully through many different contexts. You are a leadership consultant. You are a martial artist. You are a poet. You are a spiritual counselor, an interfaith minister. And in a world that seems obsessed with reducing people down to a single role, like, what do you do? (laughs) I just, it's just so heartening to meet someone who said, who, who can answer that question and eight different ways, probably more, right? (laughs) I wonder if we could just start there. Like, how do you hold all of these parts of yourself in in congruity? How do they live for you as as things that you're expressing in the world? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in many ways, it's something I've struggled with for years. And to some extent through my life, I've always been a kind of, lucky generalist in many ways I had a period where uh when I was young where I really really wanted to be an actor um and 
so I was very focused. There was always lots of things I was interested in. I was quite good at other things at school, but I was really, that was what I wanted to do. And so I was kind of hundred percent for that. Um, but when I, I sometimes joke, I, I ran away from the circus to find my home. Um, I walked away from theater because I'd become clear. I didn't want to be an actor anymore. I was pretty rudderless for a few years and, 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 and I've kind of wandered ever since with greater and lesser uh, clarity and sense of direction at different times. Um, I think for me, it's, um, I found it really heartening when I heard Joseph Campbell describe himself as generalist. Because mm. mm. for me, it's like, he, he strikes me as someone who's a deep expert in a single thing. That's what he's known for. But actually, as an academic, he's a generalist because he didn't. He was studied across multiple disciplines. It's like, oh wow, that's. It was like a real sense of permission in that that someone who could be so respected and held up as a kind of deep expert in his field could consider himself a generalist. Hmm. Um, and, you for those who are who are listening who might not know who Joseph Campbell is, could you say he, just a sentence or two about? Him? Yeah, so he's famous for a. Uh, a TV series back in the 60s, I think it was. Maybe it was later. Maybe it was later, but he was known for, called The Power of Myth. And, and he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he, he studied he, uh, myths cross-culturally, across every culture around the world, folklore and myths, and suggested this uh, idea that all of the hero myths in particular from all over the world had a common structure. And that if we map that structure, it was a potentially a really useful um, navigational tool to understand the journey of uh, growth and development as a human being. Mm. Um, and and it, 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 the, that bit of theory is called the hero's journey. And it's used by lots of people in lots of different fields. It's used uh, in marketing and ad agencies to make sense of things it's used in development and learning to design experiences kind of transformation experiences for people it's used in all sorts of different settings in the modern day some of which you wouldn't necessarily predict and it's still a re- pretty well respected piece of theory in terms of um cross-cultural study of folklore and what that means really for human development and spiritual mm. development mm. thank you yeah, yeah. So, you so like I say, kind of, he seems so he seems so special niche, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like and oh, then he's he, the myth guy. He's yeah. the, the hero's journey guy. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And and uh, um and yet he described himself as generous. It was like, oh, cool. Um, and in a way, I feel like I've had a similar journey that I've uh, w- once I started to give myself permission to 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 kind of just do a whole bunch of different things. There's a way I've sort of accidentally focused down. And not even because I have focused, but because there's things that have, it's become clear that that is what people, that, that that's who I am. Mm. Mm. Um, and that if I turn up as who I am, then that's, then that's who I am anyway. Uh, there's this whole thing, you know, in the kind of modern internet marketing world of kind of, you've got to find your niche and define your niche and tell everyone what your niche is and don't stray outside your niche. I'm sure it's really true if you want to sell a lot of stuff. Um, uh, it is probably truth in it. Um, but there's a way that, like I say, for me, um, I find it hard. I'd find it hard to tell you what my niche is. I'm getting better at it. 
but um, I'd find it hard to tell you what my niche is, but I have one because people keep coming back to me for certain things and they don't go to other people and they go to other people for things that I go, I could do that, you know, but they go somewhere else. Okay, then let's stop chasing that one. Um, so, yeah, I feel like that. I, I prefer an emergent process around that. Yes. Yeah, like there's almost a sense that you can look backwards over the path you've walked from a higher vantage and see the logic in it that wasn't maybe apparent when you're just moving 10, only able to see 10 feet ahead in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have some sense like, uh, I don't, don't feel like a need for you to do this, but it sounds like you've really started to tune into who you are Mm -hmm. and what people come to you for. So, so what's, what has emerged from you from this journey now that you've had the wisdom of some years and some experience to learn from and look back on. What are you seeing now that you couldn't see when you started and you were feeling rudderless? Yeah. Well, wisdom is definitely a part of it. It's something I'm fascinated with. And uh, in both the kind of the, the utterly mysterious quality of it and in quite a kind of um, precise and almost academic way well, i hesitate to say academic because i'm not not an academic by nature or, or by training really um even the academic qualifications i have are, are not terribly academic um <laughs> so uh but but in that kind of really trying to study it and understand it and break it down kind of way so th- there's there's both ends of that you know the kind of mysterious and nebulous and trying to get precise about the thing so wisdom is definitely part of that and and i think i always in my heart of hearts, I always wanted to for people to experience me as wise. Um, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to artic- articulate that as a young man, but I think it was true even back then. And increasingly, that's the feedback I get. You know, people saying that that's what they experience from me mm-hmm. is a sense of wisdom, and and so that's really satisfying, <laughs> um, and um, and helps to give me a sense of coherence and helps and a bit of focus because I can be a kind of given enough time and space and freedom i I would probably drown in in a a vat of my own creativity because i'll just make and make and make and make until i've kind of buried myself in it um so it it helps to give me a little focus too and there seems to be to me some wisdom in that recognition that the creative force unbridled and taken to its furthest logical conclusion is perhaps actually not going to allow you to create something coherent that you'll just end up muddled drowning overwhelmed yeah yeah for sure yeah for sure i mean i I joked for years about um my orphan book babies um which someone also once suggested would be a great um name for a book imprint maybe i'll do that one day um but because I, I I'd write these books and you know put time and care and love into creating a book, and then put it out in the world, and for various reasons, um, then not really promote it. Mm. And there's you know some of those reasons are deeper psychological ones in me in terms of self-esteem and and um, starting to question question my own creation as kind of art once it's out there kind of then starting to question it to pieces so there's some of that in there but some of it is also just i didn't know how to and i wasn't that interested in the process of marketing or mm. being good at that mm. um so i just sort of lose interest <laughs> like i'd done the thing now it's out there you know 
Um, no, I did the bit that I, I was interested in. It's kind of finished. Um, so there's these kind of, I did feel like I'd kind of put these kind of feral book children out into the world and then hope that they survived. And, and <laughs> yeah, some of them have done better than others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's also, um, I, I did some work with um, around archetypes. Uh, so these kind of deep structures of our psyches um, that Jung talked about, who's a, one of the parent, the, the fathers of modern psychology, Jung, he talked about archetypes as the kind of foundational structures in the human psyche, uh, almost like characters that live within us. And then there's a lady called Carol Pearson who did some brilliant work studying that and developing that and developed a, a psychometric tool actually based on that work as well. Which tool is that? Um, it's the Pearson Marr Archetype Indicator, PMAI. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. Um, and you get, which your she worked with these 12 archetypes the magician and the warrior and the caregiver these different ones and you get which one's kind of your strongest one and the supporter ones and there's ways that you can also uh it's, this isn't all in the tool but if you know how to de- debrief the tool you can uh, map those out in different ways and it helps to make sense of different things and my strongest one is the creator mm. um and the, these archetypes go in pairs and um, one of my weakest ones is the destroyer, which is the complementary opposite of the creator. <laughs> and and when I came across that and saw that, it was um, it was it was really helpful. A to recognise, oh, the creator. Yeah, I can see that in myself. Like that is the thing I most strongly, most instinctively do is make stuff, and always have done. It doesn't have to be. I don't have to be an actor. I just make stuff. You mm-hmm. know. Um, and uh, and I, and I'll do that in all. Again, I'm a generalist. You know, I'll do that in all sorts of different spaces. There are things I've become more skillful at. You know, I was pretty skillful as an actor when I was practicing that. These days, it's mostly writing. Mm. Um, but I'm not bad at drawing. Um, I'm pretty good at 3D kind of modelling. I started doing some of that with my son recently, and I've ended up. I've nearly finished making a wizard figure. That's I'm actually pretty pretty pleased with. Uh, um, cool. Using yeah. like 3D printing or something like that. No, um, in the sculpture, like modeling clay. Oh, Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, it's there's just a way that I instinctively create, and that's that's the kind of urge that I follow. But in that, I love that. Well, it's yeah, it's it's fun to play together in that space. Um, but the the wisdom of the archetypes was that if you that that's the shadow of the creator archetype is that you're just creating, 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 create until you drown in your own creations. Um, and, and the destroyer is the one that cuts away. Mm. And it's the, you have to have a kind of healthy destroyer to balance your creator. If you're going to have any kind of focus or clarity or discipline, because it's the destroyer that goes cut that away. Yes. It's a nice idea, but don't do that one. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, and I remember I had at one point I think thirteen or fourteen folders in in a, on my laptop, with each of which was a book. <laughs> Progress. Um, and when I when I worked with this archetype stuff, I I was I went back to that folder and went, okay, those are all lovely ideas. Put them in another folder to go maybe one day, and pull out maybe two or three and work on those. And get really focused on which one is first yeah. and is the priority. Because I, I do find it helpful to have different projects to be able to go, I'm getting stuck with that one that's going to work on something else. But 
to be clear that this is the one I want to get out the door first. So okay. keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it, keep jumping back to it. To have some sense of discipline. Nice, nice. I sense that destroyer. We might also like every good author needs a good editor, right? Like yeah. the editor is kind of like if you can't be Absolutely. your own destroyer, like don't yeah. worry, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna cut out about thirty percent of this book here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. And sometimes yeah. the destroyer can show up too soon, right? Like I, I think there's an inversion here where people might have be really strong in that way, and they want to yeah. be creative. Yeah, but they find that they keep censoring themselves and cutting themselves short before they even get any momentum. Is that right? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. I've actually recently written a blog post. I haven't published it yet, but it's one I've been working on because I joined a writers group a little while ago, or we formed me and some friends formed a writers group, and um, I noticed again, as I've noticed in many environments before, the degree to which many creatives seem to have an extremely strong inner critical voice. Mm. Mm. and i was like ha huh, i've seen this before i keep seeing it why is that and i was reflecting on it through that lens of the of the archetypes and it came to me that maybe it's the destroyer because if i think it's probably quite common that if you've got a very strong creator the destroyer will kind of fall into shadow because it's yeah. it's the antithesis of who you most want to be in a way at least in it, it, on the surface and um I thought, hey, what if the inner critical voice is the destroyer who doesn't have a job? <laughs> if you don't give the destroyer a job on purpose, then it'll find itself a job oh, yeah. and it's going to come after you. It's just going to pick holes in you and everything you do. So I wonder what you're describing there, you know, the destroyer stepping in too early is because you haven't given them a job. You haven't told them what their job is. So they just go, ah, oh, screw this. <laughs> I've, I need to have something to do, so I'm just going <laughs> to pick holes in you. <laughs> Buckle gonna, up, buddy. Yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to cut holes in everything that you do. Um, and and it's it's just got me wondering, you know, whether that's a, a different way to do, deal with the inner critical voices instead of trying to – and there's lots of great work about dealing with the inner, you know, the, the inner critic or, or that voice of um, – yeah, kind of harsh inner voice. Or, or imposter syndrome or similar things. But I start to wonder if maybe that would be a really creative kind of magical way of working with it is, is to go whenever that creative voice steps in to go, oh, hey, you're the destroyer, right? That's, um, that's, that, that thing you're doing isn't helpful, but I've got a great job for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're really, um, I think your instincts are, that resonates a lot with me. Um, mm. I've been studying recently Oh, I wish I had the name at my fingertips, but there is an author who wrote a book. She's a Buddhist practitioner and she wrote a book, Feeding Your Demons. Mm, okay. And there's also um, a, a psychotherapist and thinker, a guy named Richard Schwartz, who who found something called internal family systems. Mm. What's interesting is that internal family systems is a modern modality for therapy and, and feeding your demons is rooted in an ancient Buddhist practice. But both of these practices essentially are about what you're talking about, which is to say yeah. we have these parts of ourselves. Yeah. And often we notice the way those parts of ourselves, if we're, if we're aware enough to notice them, yeah. we often gravitate towards some and repel others or repress yeah. others. And so I could imagine people who are really creative 
kind of moving away from the destroyer part of themselves. And then what's interesting is the destroyer part says, no, like, you got to give me something to do. I'm here for a reason. Yeah. And so uh, maybe how would you, from a, so now that you've been sitting with this and, and having this insight of like, oh, the inner critic is there for many of us. Most yeah. of us can't stand it. We listen too much to it. It makes us feel bad, but maybe there's another way. How, how have you started to work with that either in yourself or with your clients or with your writer's group? Like, how are you helping? What job are you going to give that inner critic? That would help. Yeah. Yeah, for me it's um a lot of it's about love, I suppose. Mm. I mean it's it's um I'm I guess I'm reflecting on it because with clients it really varies whether or not they're in a place where they can hear it. So I can share that insight. And even if it resonates for them and makes sense, whether they can change that or not is a totally other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, what, what in a way, um, if you get a dog and you beat it every day, eventually it's going to bite you, even when you're trying to feed it. Mm-hmm. And I think these the archetypes that we that we squash and deny and try and ignore are kind of like that. Mm. That if you squash them long enough, they're going to turn around and cut you because that's all you've taught them how to do. And just the same with a dog. If you want to take a uh, an angry, violent dog and teach it something else part of that process if it's going to have any chance of success is being loving and appreciative because the violent instinct comes from a lack total lack of a sense of safety and love and care and tenderness so if we can create that sense of safety and love and care and tenderness then their nature will change um there's a translation there's there's a guy who does sort of transliterations of poems called daniel ledinsky beautiful ones um and he has a book of them from all different um mystical writers including people like rumi and hafiz who are well known and other ones from other traditions like saint john of the cross who may be less well known or Teresa of avila and um there's one of those i can't remember ex- it precisely but it's along the lines of um uh, I started to call my dog God and he stopped biting. Um, and then today he even started to smile. I wonder if this would work on people. It's along those lines. It's a very beautiful kind of simple. I'm sorry, I can't remember the precise wording because it's beautifully phrased, but it's it's along those lines. And, it, and it's for me, it's like that. So what I know for myself, name? sorry. What was the name of the, the, the poet who transliterates these poems? Uh, he's called Daniel Ladinsky. Daniel Ladinsky, yeah. So we'll yeah. find that one and, and share it in the show notes. For people. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful book, Love Poems from God. Yeah. And um, he, so that process of loving, for me, that's that moment. So the moment where I spot the, if, if I 
uh, work on the work with the assumption that the dis, that the inner critic is the destroyer misdirected. Then, if I'm going to have any leverage in that relationship to say, "Hey, can you do something different?" Like, if you ask someone who hates you to do something different, they're going to go, "Say, screw you, buddy," <laughs> and do it even worse, right? Yeah, yeah. Whereas, if you can find a place of love and go, "Hey, oh, hello, you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry." Can I ask you to do something a little bit different? I have a kind of tender moment together. There's there's a chance that they might turn around and go, oh, okay, okay, maybe we can do this differently. You know, you can renegotiate the relationship, but that's got to start with from a place of love. And I find that with clients too. That there's, I, I, that if we can, if I can find the right moments to appreciate and offer blessing, counter to they're not arguing with but just just like whatever their inner critic is saying to make sure that i bless the opposite mm. then that start then the opposite starts to flourish mm. and um and the possibility to transmute that relationship starts to become possible but they they also have to start to um be able to see that in a in a critic not as the enemy because yeah. if we're fighting well, then we pre- preserve the conflict yes. whereas if we can blend with it and transform the relationship that's that's a different thing it's not destroying it, it's not getting rid of it it's transforming a relationship wow hmm. there's so much there that i can see why francis people have begun to see you as the wisdom guy <laughs> <laughs> there's so much there and, you know, we're in this, we happen to be in this particular moment. Uh, it's, I don't know, what's the day today? Like April 22nd. So people all over the world are at week five, six, seven, eight of a lockdown. And you just released a, uh, so you have this daily newsletter. And I'll make sure there's a link to that too. But but for people listening, Francis puts out these wonderful daily missives. And one of those misses today was this recognition that wisdom lives kind of at the intersection of experience and self-awareness. Am I, am I getting that right? Uh, yeah. Was that you had sort of a little, as much as a part of you resisted, you had a little formula like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. wisdom kind of needs both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you started to dig and say, well, right now, a lot of us, those of us who are privileged enough to have a shelter to shelter in mm. or work that lets us work in shelter as opposed to being out on the front lines and like mm. deep bow of gratitude to grocers and the janitorial workers and the post people and all everyone who's out there are having yeah. some pretty intense experiences but many of us are kind of like oh i'm in my library for my study my office for how many days has it been yeah, <laughs> yeah. so there's not a lot of opportunity for the kind of experience part of or at least what we think of it's i'm gonna go travel i'm gonna meet people i'm gonna have parties i'm gonna go to concerts and our our life is normally filled with an unending cornucopia of experiences to the point where we can completely lose touch with what's happening inside of us yeah uh, suddenly many of us are thrust into situations where it's like wow i've looked at i've watched youtube for four hours and i still have another <laughs> four hours to like spend with myself now what right i yeah. just wonder if you could talk a bit about what i'm hearing in your invitation this idea that we if we keep being in conflict 
that will perpetuate your, itself. But if mm. we shift to a place of loving inquiry and curiosity and compassion, then that conflict won't definitely dissolve, but it might. Mm. I wonder if you could just sort of start to unpack that for people in this particular moment, or just more broadly in any moment, like what's the value in spending time doing the inner work that wisdom emerges from, as opposed to just the experiential part of the equation? Yeah. Yeah. So we can maybe come back to the the equation if that's helpful, because there's another part of it too that I can share. But to speak to what you've said there, what comes to mind is... um, so when on a good day, it's easy to be loving, mm. right? It's not that hard. If I'm with people I really love on a lovely day, doing things that are really enjoyable and there's no stress and nice food, right? Easy, right? It's, okay. I just feel loving. <laughs> Even you just describing that, I was like, ah. Oh. Ah, yes, right? <laughs> just talking about it, like my, soma- my, my soma, my body knows it. And, yeah. I, and I describe it, my imagination comes up and I go, oh, yeah, that feels good. Hmm. Um, so it's easy then. The, the tricky thing and what I think in a way that what you're getting at is, is that when it's not a good day, when things are difficult, when I'm isolated, when I don't have the circumstances I want, um, or when, when, it's, when things aren't going my way, in one way or another, and this is true right now for a lot of people a lot more of the time than I think would normally be the case, right? Yeah. Because we're dealing with circumstances outside of our control that we would not choose. Yeah. And like as you say, it for many of us, incredibly lucky compared with others, but I, I'm wary of comparing wounds. Yeah. Right? Because because someone else is suffering more than me doesn't make my suffering less. Mm. Right. It's still there. It's still suffering. So let's just give ourselves permission to go you know what, yes, other people are suffering more or having a harder time or working harder or in more danger or whatever else. And Mm. for me today, this is hard Mm. and it's okay for it to be hard. So in those circumstances, it's much harder to be loving with myself, with another part of myself, with another person, with my child, whatever, it's harder. Yeah. And one of the things I came across that really helped me with that was in Hawaiian shamanism that i studied a bit while i was um studying hawaiian a hawaiian tradition massage tradition the word aloha so in the hawaiian language uh in that tradition um the philosophy of the hawaiian peoples is actually woven into the language so any given word you can translate that word but you can also break it down into pieces and translate it in like a dozen different ways Mm. and that gives layers of meaning and I was massaging someone one day and a Hawaiian, traditional Hawaiian massage in, in the tradition I had studied was usually two and a half, three hours long. Wow. And <laughs> so it's, it's a thing. <laughs> um, and, and you know, a big part of it is not just the physical movements and, and, and things, but it's also the quality of presence that you bring to that. So I was always working with a kind of, um, trying to be in a in a, a loving presence as consistently as possible through the massage. So it's a kind of meditation practice in that way as well. Mm. And I was reflecting one day while I was massaging someone on on the concept of aloha, which is the word that you say 
hello and goodbye with, but is also the word for love. And I'd always loved the idea that you welcome someone with love and you send them on their way with love. I was reflecting on that while I was massaging someone. And then I had this epiphany moment. It felt like a kind of, duh, why didn't I think about that sooner? Because because of the way that you can translate the, the language in lots of different ways, I should have spotted it. I was like, but just a minute, what if you turn that around? And the key to being loving is to keep saying hello and goodbye. I was like, ha, huh, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. It's like, oh, wow. Hidden within the word is the dot to dot of how to be loving even when you don't know how. Mm. So even in my most difficult moment on the worst day, the most loving thing I can do is say hello to what's emerging and goodbye to what's, what's leaving, what's disappearing. Mm. And hello and goodbye and hello and goodbye and hello and goodbye to every moment. Because that's what's going to enable me. It's going to, what's going to help me to just be present with what is. And I think that's the most loving thing we can do. Is, is, it's a moment where judgment is absent. And I'm just with what's really happening right now. And that full presence when we realize that, however imperfectly, I mean, you know, I'm not the Buddha by any means. Um, I, and and I, I maybe it gets easier when you're aligned. I don't know. Um, but when we're able to be fully present in that way with each and every moment coming and going, I think loving gets a lot easier. Mm. Still not perfect, but it's easier to access that kind of loving, loving state. And, and the more I thought about that, the more it makes sense to me, you know, it, we talk about if you love someone, set them free. And, and I think the heart of that is actually something I've realized over time is many of us, um, I, I might get attached to a, a, an identity. In a way, this speaks to what we were talk, speaking about earlier in terms of kind of niching and identity in the world and stuff like that. I can get attached to being, I, I am this person. I am Francis and I do X. And so I cease to be present with who I am in this moment mm. and trap myself in an identity, mm. a badge I've put on, a label I've placed on myself. Someone else has given me a label and I've accepted it and started to embody it, whatever that might be. So I cease to be present with who I am in this moment. So if someone else came along and saw me with absolute clarity for who I am in this moment, ignoring all labels, that would be the most freeing thing they could offer me in that moment, right? And beautiful. so again, if you love someone, set them free, like actually saying hello and goodbye and hello and goodbye and hello and goodbye to this moment, to what's going on in this moment, setting that discipline of hello and goodbye is potentially the most loving way of being with another person too because you'll see who they are right now and be with them right now, not with the idea of them two years ago when you first got into the relationship. Then getting upset about the fact that they've changed, right? Which can happen to all of us. I've done that. You know, I'm not saying that critically, but because we're all human and we get attached to things being a certain way. So whether it's the person that we love, whether it's our child, whether it is this moment, this difficult moment where we're, we're all experiencing dif different kinds of difficulty, isolation, hard work, 
being on the front line, being stuck at home, whatever it might be, or whether it's an archetype inside ourselves that we're trying that we're wanting to transform our relationship with because it's become dysfunctional. For me, that's that's the dot to dot, and it doesn't really need to be any more complicated than that. It's uh, as my first martial arts teacher, the wonderful uh, Steve Rowe, used to say, "It's simple." That doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for that. Mm. I, there's so much that came up for me there, but I'm finding myself really curious if you have some sense about what it is in this particular moment of your journey as a teacher and coach and writer what you can say hello to and what you might be saying goodbye to. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lovely question. Thank you. I, um, I notice I feel sad hearing that. Yeah. Um, and when I, uh, that sadness, uh, it kind of melancholy is something often comes to the surface for me when I'm, um, when I'm in a tender kind of present moment. I mean, something I feel really clear about in terms of what I'm saying hello to is, is the work around wisdom. It's really been in the last six months that I've become clear about that in the way that I am now. And it's in the last week <laughs> um, that I've seen an avenue, a different avenue for offering that in, in a way that has, again, it's just become clear. It's something I've been kind of on the way towards for a long while, but it never felt quite clean or clear enough for me to put it out into the world. And it's got clear. And yeah, just in the last, maybe, yeah, maybe two weeks, week, two weeks. Um, which is the on- online course I mentioned to you before about um, you, the structures of how to cultivate wisdom and design wise learning for, for, for facilitators and coaches and teachers and people. Yeah, and we talked about that before I pressed record, but just just for those listening in, that's this this new. You mentioned you had two or three things that you you put everything else in a folder and kept. Yeah. One of these things is an experience for creating for people like us, coaches, facilitators, to to actually take others on a journey towards deeper wisdom and deeper knowing. Yeah, a- uh, yeah, and getting structured and pre- being able to get quite precise about how to do that. What are the steps and what are the pieces? Yeah. So that's definitely something that's really alive in me right now and I'm excited about it and it, it feels like it's kind of, it's come to the surface and, it, and its time has come in a way. I've been working on that work for 10 years. Yeah. So, it, but it's, it's like it's gone, oh, now I'm clear enough to, to take that to the world in, a, in some way. What I'm saying goodbye to, I've been in a transition for at least 18 months probably but I think it may be a bit longer than that, but it's definitely been the last kind of 18 months or so. um, And in a way, this is interesting because it's almost a counterpoint to that, saying that I'm ready to put that work into my This is almost the opposite. So it's a dance for me right now, working out what that looks like. Because I've been in a transition where I, I became aware of the degree to which my... So one of the things, my ambition was driving me. Mm. So one of the things I had for a long time squashed and denied in the way we were talking about the destroyer earlier um, was is ambition. It's something I didn't, I didn't have good associations with 
and I didn't want to be seen as ambitious. I had a kind of association of it being, um, I don't know, arrogant and selfish and um, uncaring potentially, you know, which are all potential shadows of being very ambitious. But the the downside of me um, being so focused on the negatives is that I unconsciously was driven by my own ambition and it became it was a blind spot for me certainly the degree i I knew i was ambitious to some degree in certain ways but the degree to which that was driving my decision making was a blind spot for me Mm. and it became through some really difficult stuff um happening in my life and and uh yeah i i became i got clear about the degree to which that was the case and the degree to which that was a problem for me. Mm. So I've been in, I, I have been in, and I feel like I continue to be in a kind of extended transition of trying to learn how not to be driven by ambition. So mm. not to squash it, but to be aware of it and choiceful around it, but not to, not for my default choice to be, Oh yes, I'll do more of that. Yeah from a place of wanting to prove myself and have recognition and yeah, kind of trying to fill, fill, fill the, um, the bottomless pit of hunger, you know, the kind of hungry ghost as they're sometimes talked about in the Tibetan tradition, you know, kind of, I'd say that's one of my, that, that has the potential. I think there's a, a genuine and, and and an okay and kind of human and part of me desire for recognition yeah that's okay uh, there's a healthy version of that but there's definitely an unhealthy version of that uh, that my ambition that driven ambition was constantly just trying to throw more stuff in the hole to fill the hole um but as anyone who's read read a, read a fairy story or telly bo- bottomless pits can't be filled <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that's why they're called bottomless pits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they're aptly named. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there. It, it sounds like you're trying to help your ambition say goodbye to the job that it took on for you and the shadows, and maybe take on a new job. Yeah, is that right? Something like that. Something like that. Um, there's something about um, uh, the whole narrative, which, I, and I think this is in, in some ways, I think this is interesting because I think it's it's in the zeitgeist right now. There's a thing about having an impact in the world. Yeah. Like I want to have an impact. Like when I talk to. I'm going to sound like an old man right now, and I'm not by any means. But when I talk to young people, you know, so people in their twenties, I hear a lot of people talk about when I, you know, ask, "Oh, what do you want from your work, or what do you want in your life?" Because I work in a corporate environment a lot of the time in my leadership work. You know, they'll talk about purpose, and it'll often the, the a word that comes up more than anything else, more even than purpose, is impact. I want to make an impact, mm. and you know, there's loads of the kind of 
what I've come to think of as the kind of shouty, pushy Facebook advertising about, you know, 10xing your business, you can 10x your business and you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and magnifying your impact and all of that. Yeah. And that, in a way, I, I, I laugh about it. I'm trying to laugh about it because I recognize it in myself. You know, some bit of me that really wants to be world famous for something. Mm. And that's not just about ego and kind of look at me. It's actually about, cause I want to, I want to feel the satisfaction and joy of feeling like I have a big purpose in the world and I'm making a difference. You know, that's the drive. Um, but there's something I'm, I'm, and I, 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 I'm not sure how articulate I can be about this or how clear I can be about this because it's something I'm still exploring. Yeah. But one of the things that really spoke to me that I keep coming back to as a kind of image that, that, uh, or a, like a, a point of navigation in my journey with it is um, a, there's a writer called Jim Dodge who I really love who wrote a wonderful novel um, called Stone Junction that I heartily recommend. Um, great adventure, kind of it's a slightly fantastical, mystical adventure. Um, <clears throat> and he wrote another lovely book that is, pro- I think, the, one of the most perfect books I've ever read called Fuck. It's a really oh. short book. And it's like he was so brave to write a book that short. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect story. It's the, per- it's the perfect story perfectly told for me. And it's about a duck. <laughs> so Fuck Duck. Um, about a duck called Fup. Um, it's just a wonderful story. Um, and I became really interested in him because he hadn't written lots of stuff, but everything I read by him I really love. And I found out, you know, started to find out more about him. And I, I came, and he's, he actually, he wasn't a writer as a career. He taught writing at one point at university, but he also worked in like forest management and stuff like that, even though he had quite critically acclaimed works. I found that really interesting too. Is another kind of this. He wasn't this this one thing. He was a sort of semi-famous writer, but was also having to have a day job. And you know, it's like, wow, okay. It helped to set the whole thing in perspective. And then I came across a really lovely interview with him that had been from years before when I even when I came across it, but, but online found this interview where the interviewer was talking about him. Um, he talked about his ambition. I think he was asked about what his ambition was or something like that. And he said, "I want to be famous for a hundred miles." <laughs> which in the in in the era of being like global impact be world famous you know 10x your business be known on every continent it was like wow famous for 100 miles and he he was ta- he talked about in an interview how like the degree to which he saw himself as famous was that in his he's american and he said in his state he'd sometimes get recognized on the street because he, he would publish these chapbooks of poetry, which is an old fashioned way of publishing poetry in these like thin, almost like photocopied books, yeah. like booklets really. And they were traditionally, they're called chapbooks. So he published these chapbooks of poetry and then go and do, a, do readings in the independent bookstores around the state and sell copies of the chapbooks. So he was, the degree to which he got recognized on the street was people in his state who'd go, oh, you're that weird guy who reads poetry in the bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> so that was him being famous for 100 miles. It's just like in, in his little area, uh, he was the guy that would be recognised on the street for reading, po- being the weird guy who reads poetry. 
And um, I just there was something about the simplicity of that and the humility in that that really speaks to me of not eschewing being known at all, not saying I don't want to be known for anything. Just leave me alone. I'm going to be a hermit hiding yeah. in a shed and leave me a bee and. I don't care about the outside world, whether, you know, or even just, you know, I'm here with my family and I'm not interested in being known because I am interested in having an impact in the world. And I do have a, a desire and a drive for a, a degree of recognition. But, and I want to own that. I don't want to kind of squash that. But it being, if there's something about that idea of being famous for 100 miles that feels, as a, as a metaphor, that feels um, achievable. But it feels humble, but it also feels manageable. Yeah, there's something about these times when I've been very driven for the kind of putting my work into the world and being known on the big stage and stuff like that. There's a kind of, I really feel the presence of those hungry ghosts. You know, mm. there's a kind of gnawing anxiety about. I've put a post on Facebook. Has everyone? Has anyone? How many people have liked it? <laughs> All that shit that just kind of wells up out of the kind of the the, the uncomfortable places in my psyche. It's like it it calls forth all the worst bits in a way that I think isn't very healthy for me. And maybe it's good to see, you know, maybe some people really just enjoy the buzz of that. I know people who experience that very differently, but for me anyway, it feels like it's um, it's not a particularly good place to be yeah. um, in myself or with my family or, you know, it kind of has impacts elsewhere. So that's, yeah, like I say, this 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 idea from the, the wonderful, the inimitable Jim Dodge of uh, being famous for a hundred miles is something that I'm I'm trying to work out what that means for me. Yeah, it's a great metaphor, and I'm tuning into the the recognition. I mean, you, you could throw a stone in any direction in a hundred miles and hit a celebrity who's who's famous for uh, for you know around the globe and hear the story of how that has impacted their lives in all sorts of ways that they wouldn't have asked for. Yeah. Right. And so you can sort of see the, the shadow side of, of an ambition that is unconscious and welling up and driving without awareness mm. can actually bring you to a place that is in fact the exact opposite of what you thought you were longing for. Yeah. Right. And, and you can pick a, a, a high performer in any field and they're they're might be famous but they didn't do it because they were famous they did it because they like they're really good at it and they want to <laughs> keep getting better at it and they yeah. love it and it fills them up and then suddenly it's like that's all gone because we have to go to press releases and you know interviews yeah. and manage their social media and avoid the paparazzi and like and like suddenly they don't have any more time for their craft yeah and it's this weird trap we can put ourselves in yeah 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 it's just hearing you describe that <clears throat> it reminds me of something a friend of mine james said recently we were talking about because he's uh he's an old colleague of mine and um he's really competitive um and he's he's a part of his work is as a coach kind of human performance coach and he used to be a coach to the as part of the team of coaches working with the british olympic team oh Cool. Um, and he's a, uh, a, a wonderful human being. And, uh, and I was chatting to him cause I feel like he embodies competition in a way that I can relate to. There's other people I know who are super competitive and, and wear it reasonably gracefully, but I, I don't, 
it feels there's too much of an edge to it for me. Mm. And, and it doesn't feel like a kind of model of being competitive and ambitious that I can, that suit, fits for me. Mm. Whereas James feels like um, uh, a much, James Glover, his name is, lovely man. Um, it feels like a, a, a more of a role model for me in that space, maybe. Like he's, a, he's got a version of it. I go, oh, yeah, I like that. I wonder how I could do that version. And um, he, I was talking to him about competition and the way he put it, uh, which I really liked when he said it was, I want to win, but I don't have to win. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and when you're talking about, you know, those kind of unasked for consequences of the unconscious or, you know, not intended, entirely intended or, or desired, but not intended or something like that. Um, uh, ambition and, and, and fame. That it reminds me of that. You know, it's like the, I have to win. It, it, that that would drive, I, I don't just want to win, I have to win. Yeah. And that whole attitude, that whole mindset, I think is, I think that's become the norm, actually. You know, if you look in sports, that's the, the, the rhetoric of, of competition. Uh, there's a writer um, who I've just started reading, picked up one of his books again, George Leonard, who's a, an old favourite of mine as a writer, one of the far, grandfathers of the human potential movement and, and the embodiment movement too. Mm. And, um, you know, he talks about the way that uh, he talked way back about the way that our culture has become kind of obsessed with competition in a really unhealthy way. Mm. Um you know i can't it's not enough to win i have to destroy the competition you know people talking that, and that whole language and rhetoric is to me sort of what's wrong with competition you know and yet competition has the potential to be such a beautiful generative life-giving space for people i see people who are brought alive by competition and just enjoy themselves yeah and yet for me as a child growing up that was never my experience and i've I've had to kind of reclaim the concept of competitiveness as an adult because it was just so kind of messy. As a, as yeah, a, as a there's a cutthroat quality to it that yeah, that is really what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like I, I wouldn't be surprised if your friend, what was his name, James Glover? Is that right? Yeah, James. Glover. Yeah, like uh, underneath that statement, I want to win, but I don't have to. I'm I'm projecting another statement, which is because I want to play more mm. than I want to win. Yeah. I want to be in the game. Yeah. Whether I'm winning or losing cuz it just feels great. Yeah. It's just so much fun and I'm using my body or my mind or my skills. Yeah. To the to right at the edge of what I'm capable of and I yeah. want to keep doing that for as long yeah. as I can. Yeah, yeah. Cuz it's like if I have to win, if yeah. winning is all that matters, what does that mean if I lose? Yeah. Did I just pack up my bags and go? Am I not worth anything now? Is it is the game over? Or or worse, does that mean I'm gonna be even more cutthroat the next time I come in because I have to win? Yeah. Right? Like, no, I want I want everyone to play. Yeah. <laughs> like as long as we know what the boundaries are, we can play with quite a lot of freedom. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really lovely way of describing it. And yeah. Yeah, and, and that Play, playing how play can give you a sense of freedom and uh vitality you know i think yes. that's that's a really yeah that's a really that's a beautiful thing um 
And there's a bit of that, there's a bit of that creator destroyer in there too. It's like, we're all playing our own game. Like we're all creating our own thing. We can't actually play together. Yes. So we need some sort of boundaries or rules for a, for a game to become possible. Yes. Um, and oh, I was just, this is just coming to me now. There's someone I'll try and find the thinker. I can't think, I can't draw his name to mind right now, but this is the idea that there are some of us who play kind of the short game and basically yes. like, we're trying to like win this game. And there are some of us who are playing the long game, which is like, we're going to keep playing even as the game evolves and changes. It might be from Stuart Brand, The Clock of the Long Now. Yeah, this mm-hmm. idea that some of us might actually play the bigger game, which is we're always in it together. We're always in it to play, to have fun, to increase complexity, to add new possibilities. Yeah. Versus I'm here to beat you right now in this moment. And when I beat you, you're out. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... I mean, it may be um, it, it may be uh, the writer you suggested. There's also um, a famous book of philosophy called uh, "Finite and Infinite Games." That's it. That's it. Yeah, by James P. Cars. James P. Cars. Yeah. Um, and, and which, of course, Simon Sinek has now picked up the concept of infinite games, and has, he's done a book on infin- the the infinite game. Oh, I did not realize. Uh, but, but it comes from yeah, it's a recent one by Simon Sinek, but um, originally. As, as far as I know, it comes from, yeah, uh, James B. Cass's, but which also uh, George Leonard was a big fan of. So he, he he designed games. George Leonard was kind of known, though he's known in the world as this person, um, you know, who's a kind of human potential and writer on embodiment and uh, well-being and kind of stuff like that. Apparently people who knew him well knew him as someone who just invented games constantly. <laughs> um, That's so cool. And uh, he, he created a thing called the Samurai Game, which I came to the US and trained in. Uh, trained to run and facilitate and um, and that's like a real big long form game um uh, as a kind of personal growth experience it's a it's a fascinating thing but it is it feels like it's a, a, a real expression of that of the melding of george's different fascinations of both the um that studying of human potential and awareness and and he's also a aikido player and, and uh, very into martial arts melded with that sense of play and how do you turn things into a game in a way that helps people to uh, almost accidentally l- learn and grow. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just by dint of having a playing field and some rules, all sorts of possibilities for learning and growth become possible. Yeah. 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 And I think now I'm remembering that in the book clock of the long now by Stuart brand, which is about the, the idea of making a clock that measures time in millennia Mm. opposed to minutes and what that Ah, can do for a collective psyche he references the infinite game james p carson's Ah, idea that like infinite games are generative and cumulative and over time create new possibilities yes and finite games uh, are ultimately reductive and create winners and losers and finite games are really fun as long as they exist within the context of infinite games if yeah. the finite game becomes the framework for everything yeah. then taken to its its extreme conclusion we're left with like up oh, some people need to lose and we're going to win through war through conquering through submission through dominance and and we can see how a finite game applied at the wrong level of society can produce quite a quite a lot of pain and suffering yeah well and in a way the kind of um 
voracious capitalism that is the dominant paradigm right now for our economy is is a, is a massive finite game, right? And and yeah. we're seeing the problems with that yes. in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, there's um, just as we were talking about this, I, I there's a, a chapter from Mai Tao Te Ching. So I think as you you might reference here, yeah, that. your your transliteration, a fool's guide to effing the ineffable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, a play, playful title because I wanted to take a playful approach to to creating a, a um, contemporary expression of of the Tao Te Ching, um, which is a wonderful spiritual text from China. Uh, ancient spiritual text so there's a chapter in that about competition actually which um michael who you mentioned who had introduced you to my work he mentioned to me a little while ago um that he he had read and enjoyed so i just thought I, i'll i read that because it feels like it's, it it's a perfect yeah, fit for what we've been talking yeah. about it's chapter 68 um the best aren't trying to win true sportsmen seek to play true warriors seek peace True leaders seek to be of service. This is non-competition. Only the terminally insecure need to beat their opponents or destroy enemies. Bring your best game and honour your opponent as a collaborator in inspiring excellence. Stand for, not against. The spirit of play is essential in living your way. Oh, that's awesome, man. <laughs> that's that's, that's cool. really good. Yeah. That's really good. I feel like oh. I can't take total credit for it because I'm kind of taking taking what, what Lao Tzu said in, you know, 2,000 years ago, and I'm, I'm putting in some modern words. So it's not all mine, but it's no. a good one. I really like it. I really like what's in that. Yeah, me too. And I'll make sure, again, just for folks listening, Francis has done this wonderful transliteration of the Tao Te Ching, which is how, how many thousands of years ago would have Lao Tzu would have written this? I think it's two and a half thousand years, something yeah. like that. Yes, yeah, so I can't remember. This is an ancient text about the way of the Tao. And it's a wonderful, it's been uh, tr- translated and transliterated in, in many different formats by a number of wonderful thinkers. But yours... A Fool's Guide to Effing the Ineffable is filled with some really lovely and playful chapters like the one you just read. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. So uh, we're coming up on the hour. We may have even surpassed it because I feel like here at the end, we started both nerding out on some of our shared interests here, which has been lovely. <laughs> but one of the, like, the driving central question that, that exists in the background for this whole podcast, and, and I like to bring into the foreground at the end now that we've surfaced all of these these possibilities is this question like what is your fiercest hope for humanity and i'd love to hear you respond to that and whatever you want to and you wrote very recently this incredibly beautiful poem called there is no solid ground yeah and in some ways for me at least it answers the question i'm like oh yeah i want (laughs) more people to live into that possibility so I'm wondering if you would be willing and, and comfortable to read that poem to, to take us in, into the end of the show today. Yeah, and Before sure. you do, I, I'd love to hear any other thoughts on this question of fierce hope that's come up for you in our conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I pondered that question because I, I knew it was part of the context for this. Yeah. And, and in, in many ways it felt 
it's a little like the the thing the dance I'm doing with ambition right now. It felt kind of too big. Hmm. It's like I can't answer that. Not not like I'm not allowed or anything like. Just like that's that's bigger than I I can hold. Um. And and in some ways, when I write, when I was writing the chapters of the Tao Te Ching, what the part of the process I did, went through with that was I'd read. I'd, I've read about 12 different versions over the years and, and I take, took the four, particularly the four, sometimes I'd look at another couple, but usually I'd take the four ones that I liked best that really spoken to me with different versions. I'd read those four and then I'd write my own one. I'd try and find, allow the words to come to write my own version of what I felt was the heart of what was being written about in these different versions of the text. And um, there's a way that sometimes when I write, um, my writing something is coming through me it's not that i have the thought and then i carefully craft it i allow something to happen i get out of the way and something happens mm. and my, so my writing can take me places that i can't go myself without the writing mm. if that makes sense yes yeah. um which is exactly what happened with the, the the poem that you've asked me to read um it was i was feeling particularly i was really struggling I'd had a couple of days where I was really struggling myself and miss just missing people's faces more than anything else. Um, I feel a little tearful talking about it. Uh, not intermediated by a screen. As wonderful as that is, and it's magical that we've got this technology, a friend had dropped around some food for us and had stopped to speak to us from two metres away on the steps of our house. And uh, And there was something about seeing her face actually there not on the other side of a screen i just felt really um upset i felt really upset i really felt the kind of grief and loss and um so in a way writing that poem was me trying to write myself out of a hole Hmm. which is sometimes how i how i work things out myself and 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 writing the Tao the chapters of the Tao Te Ching felt like that too. It was like something was emerging through me. It wasn't me kind of being clever. That's why sometimes I'll go back and read a chapter in the Tao Te Ching and be like, "Oh wow, that's really good." <laughs> it's not. It's not. It doesn't come from an arrogant place. It's just like, "Oh wow, that's really cool." Wow, that was a thing. How how did I create that? <laughs> um, and uh, and. So sometimes through writing, through poetry particularly, I can, I can, I find a way to hold a subject that's that I would otherwise find too big to hold. Mm. So when you ask me that question about what's my fiercest hope for humankind, it, it's too big for me to hold. Mm. I, that's how that's that's my kind of immediate visceral response. The the one thing that does come to mind is there's um. So when I was launching a thing called Wise Fool School, which is uh, uh, an online course, it's intended to be a bigger kind of space, relational space. But the main expression right now is an online course um, and online community um, sharing some of the wisdom around the Tao Te Ching and things like the the Aloha that I talked about before. There's Some of that is woven into there as well as some of the teachings in there. So it's a kind of spiritual, personal spiritual growth kind of course. And when I was trying to write the marketing for that, 
I was trying to do the traditional thing of writing um, features and benefit, you know, what are the benefits this course is going to give you? And I ended up writing a poem by accident. And um, and that became what the marketing is, really, is that poem. Part <laughs> <laughs> of oh, that poem, <clears throat> I am... Um, I... I said, I used a phrase that had been going around for me for a while. Uh, a Latin phrase I'd, sh- I'd created, which is, uh, or come up with, which is sempodomens remains, which means return, um, forever returning home. Mm. And that's as, that's as close, I think, I, as I can get to that great wish. I mean, there's all sorts of practical wishes. Like, I'd really hope we can not wipe ourselves out. <laughs> as a species. Yeah, that would be nice. Mother Earth will survive. Yeah, she'll be fine. About us. Yeah. She'll be damaged, but she'll heal. We might not live through that yeah. as a species. So, you know, there's those kind of practical things. But I feel like there's, there's so many people are talking about that right now. I always feel like, wow, I don't, um, I can't keep banging on about that um without getting pretty feeling pretty hopeless so there's this thing of forever returning home to ourselves that um is encapsulating this phrase semper remains and there's the heart of what wiseful school is about is about how do we keep coming home to ourselves Mm. um which is very much uh, again about aloha how can i keep being present in this moment and present in this moment and present in this moment and not getting distracted and not straying off the path, but just keep coming back. And that's what Taoism is about. You know, that's what the Tao is. It's the way. And it's not one way. It's it's the way in its biggest, most archetypal sense of the path, the path that is my path. And again, in a way, maybe this links everything that we've talked about. What I was talking about at the beginning, the way that who I am is emergent. Yeah. is becoming clearer through emergence rather than because I'm trying to design my niche. That's my way. Yeah. Who I am is my way. Yeah. And I think if we can keep coming back to that, keep returning to that, then there's a way that, and really genuinely, not in a kind of egoic, oh, yeah, I'm on the path, but in a really genuine, like just softening, coming back to myself, paying attention to this moment and the next moment and the next moment, if we can help everyone to do that, the more people are doing that more of the time, the more I think we will naturally and spontaneously do the right thing. We will naturally, you know, it's the, in uh, philosophy, it's the principle of organicity, the idea of organicity that the, the organi- uh, organism, living organisms uh, orient themselves towards health mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if that the movement towards health takes you through a kind of dysfunction it's a kind of healing crisis the organism will try and move towards health uh, uh, and and move, try and move through whatever is a blockage to it like if we could all be that present if we can keep coming home to ourselves not in a selfish way but in a kind of grounded in being present in the moment then I think leadership will improve. I think we will come into a relationship with the planet where we go, oh, shit. 
we're making really bad choices. We need to change those things. Like that won't have to be imposed. And I think there's, I'd like to see that kind of stuff being more imposed to be clear by governments, because I don't think we're all con that conscious yet. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think there's enough of us kind of on that path, but if we can help more and more people to be more and more on that path of self-awareness presence and love more than anything else, being as unconditionally loving as it's in our power to be in any given moment. That would be my hope. That would be my hope. Beautiful, Francis. It's so beautiful. Thank Thanks. you. I'm glad that you let something emerge from that big question. Yeah. Really beautiful invitation to, to all of us. How do we come home to ourselves more? Yeah. Hmm. And uh, yeah, would you still be up? I, I hope it wasn't too rambly. <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, I think you just embodied the theme of emergence really beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Right, like there. Oftentimes, we are faced in life with things that seem too big for us. Yeah, and it's like that wonderful, wonderful old adage: "How to eat an elephant one bite at a time." Yeah. By the way, I don't, I don't, I don't endorse anyone actually eating elephants. They're beautiful, wise, lovely animals. <laughs> yeah. But the thought of having to do something like that can feel huge. But to just engage with, well, I don't know. Yeah. But I'm noticing this thought or this possibility. Let me pull on that thread and see what opens up. Let me let me just peer through this door and see what I can see like this invitation to just be present to what you're curious about now as a way to engage with perhaps some of the biggest challenges that we might ever ever face as, as individuals and as a species. Really lovely. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Would you be up for reading your poem? Yeah, sure thing. Sure thing. There is no solid ground. There is no one left to hold us anymore. No one who is not immersed in this thing. No one who can be the sane voice or raise their warm embrace as a place of sanctuary. We can all offer ourselves up as shoulder to lean or cry or curl up on. But none of us is not in the soup of this thing. So we must hold each other, of course share loving embrace or loving gaze or loving thoughts, but we must find another source of strength. When even the most solid of foundations begin to crack, we have to turn to the fragile, fluttering and fleeting edges of the unknown. There is a whispering nourishment to be found in the dusty corners of our awareness, a thread hard to grasp and tarnished, but golden when we wrap our fingers in its filament, barely there at all, but strong enough to pull us towards safety. You, mystery, shine a little brighter now, please. Wait a little longer now at the precipice to lead us gently back. There is a boat on this storm-wracked sea, no solid ground. I'm sorry, I cannot offer you that, but dry and buoyant, even in the flood. Perhaps that was Noah's secret, the knowing God shared with him, 
that when there is no solid ground, we must float on the waves and make our peace with the rush and crash of the storm. We must remember that even the creaking of the boards, fearful noises, signals of how fierce the storm has become, are also the voice of hope, reminding us that we are still afloat, still afloat, still afloat. Thank you, Francis. Sure thing. It's so lovely. I'll make sure that people can find you on the interwebs when we post this online. Yeah, thanks. It's such a treat to be in this space with you. You're doing really important work in the world, and I hope that more and more people find their way to it, particularly in this moment where it feels like there is no solid ground. Mm. Thank you. It's been great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love on the review boards. And if you're interested in learning more about my transformational coaching work, or if you'd like to get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings, Sign up for my newsletter at mindfulcreative.coach. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.